Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is an email that goes out to the whole world. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen in its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, thus chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts go out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, lest let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, 
made the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation O king. And this is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever He chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom, the king of heaven 
all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. I want you to write a sentence and then put a blank at the end of the sentence and this is the sentence. The person least likely to be saved that I know is, and then make a line and think about whose name you're going to put in that line while we start this study. The person least likely, the person least likely to wind up with a right relationship with God is fill in the blank. In the 1970s, Gary Wright had a number one hit entitled Dream Weaver. Some of you are old enough to remember it. According to Gary Wright, he was influenced, inspired by Hindu wisdom and literature that was given to him by George Harrison, one of the Fab Four, one of the Beatles. And the hit song Dream Weaver later became the inspiration of another cult classic movie. As a matter of fact, the writer of the movie said, movie said that this song was his inspiration for the movie. And the movie was called Nightmare on Elm Street with its evil central character, Freddy Krueger. Daniel is recording another famous dream. This is the nightmare of an ancient king. And unlike the earlier dream that we saw in the book of Daniel, we get no sense that Daniel or anyone else is in danger except the king. But it's a nightmare. It is a dream that will follow in every generation since its inception. And so here we have recorded the testimony of a Gentile king. And if you were to ask Daniel the question, the person that I think less likely, the least likely person who could ever enter into a right relationship with God and fill in the blank, he would have he would have pressed his little quill and he would have written the word Nebuchadnezzar. This guy was bad. Did he get saved? Does he abandon polytheism for monotheism? Does he, in fact, come to know and love and regard the God of Daniel? Or does the king simply come to acknowledge and respect and consider Daniel's God? But is he changed and is he changed from the inside out? The chapter is a major revelation about the origin and the nature, the sinister nature of pride. It isn't just about one dream of one Gentile king. It, it becomes a type and a picture how there are in every world, if you will, two kings and two thrones and two kingdoms. Each and every one of you are born with this predisposition to rebel against God. Someone once said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. But it's really not true. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to prove the same false. God does many things. But one of the most exacting and one of the most demanding and one of the most consistent things that God does, according to the Bible, is that he resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. 
God elevates the broken. God elevates the humble. And he casts down the proud. And unchecked pride doesn't just simply lead to inconvenience. Pride leads to insanity. And the profile of the proud includes a willingness to exalt yourself. But at the same time, most proud people aren't willing to simply exalt themselves. They feel the necessity to demean others. Once again, we were reminded that the wheels of God's justice turn slowly. And from our perspective, it seems like God isn't going to do what God says he's going to do, but he will. God's judgment is slow, but it is certain. God is both willing and able to go to extraordinary lengths in our lives to prove that he is both Lord and King. And and notice in the chapter the contrast between the king's insensitivity and Daniel's sensitivity. Between the decree of of the king and then the decree of the king of heaven. And then notice what Nebuchadnezzar thinks about himself. When he's under the judgment of God, it begins with the disturbing dream. Look at verse one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. Clearly, this is a testimony and it's been inserted in the Bible, particularly in Daniel's book, because the king wants to make a testimony. And as he wants to make the testimony, it's an open letter to the nations, and it was intended to be read by everyone. And by the way, this is taking place towards the end of his life. He has ruled and reigned, and he only has a few months, if you will, to live. In verse 2, it says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. The signs and the wonders that He's talking about are the visions and the revelations and God's great power and the intimations of His coming kingdom. For those of you who have been following along in the book of Daniel, you'll remember the opening dream that He had of the visions of the world unfolding into the future. And for those of you who were here last week and you and, and the week before and we tossed Shadrach, we shouldn't say we, Nebuchadnezzar tossed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. He experienced an amazing miracle. He has seen signs, revelations, wonders. And certainly creation is a sign. And certainly conscience is a sign. And I certainly believe that God has revealed himself in the Bible. And God has revealed himself to the characters in the Bible. To Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophets. And ultimately, ultimately, God has revealed himself to the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philosophers have put forth arguments concerning the existence of God. The ontological argument, which is the idea that being and perfection intimate a perfect being. There's a moral argument from conscience. There's the epistemological argument that comes from the eternity of truth to the existence of an eternal mind that Augustine talked about. There's this aesthetic argument that beauty, art, music implies that there's a great 
creator, a, a great musician, one who himself is beautiful and believes in beautiful things. And Pascal's wager, eternal happiness is worth believing and your only chance of losing is not believing at all. And C.S. Lewis's argument from desire, every innate desire corresponds to real objects. And because human beings have a desire for God, then there must in fact be a God. The arguments from design, the arguments from cosmology, the arguments from metaphysics, there's all kinds of arguments for God. But for Nebuchadnezzar, he gets a dream. God shows up in a dream. Reveals himself in a dream. And make no mistake about it. It is a revelation. And the dream has come from God. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Do you understand what's happening? The king is, in fact, as he begins this testimony, he goes, I was just minding my own business. Everything was going great. I'm at rest in my house. I'm flourishing in the palace. He isn't thinking God thoughts. He's not reading Augustine and Anselm. He's not reading about the cosmological, ontological, or epistemological arguments for the existence of God. He's glorying in the fact that he's the most powerful human being in all of the world. The only difference between him and you is he really is the most powerful human being in the world. But he's leaving us with the clear impression. I'm not in a search for God. I'm a mighty king with my own religion. And the Lord speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, not when he's engaged in some deep spiritual journey, contemplating philosophical and the religious implications of life. He isn't watching TV and wondering if lost is a metaphor for the entire world. He's in his golden years. He's, he, the building projects are completed. The hanging gardens are done. He's enjoying the hard-fought, hard-earned luxuries that he's earned. And then he says in verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. I want you to understand what's happening. Remember, there's an earlier dream. There is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has been given, he has been given signs and wonders and, and circumstances. And God has broken into the lethargy and the apathy. And he's given the king a nightmare that frightens him and disturbs him. Because this is the kind of dream and this is the kind of nightmare that shapes you to the very core. I don't know if you've ever had a dream and you, during the course of the dream, you were wondering if it was real or not real, if you were awake or asleep, something that shook you, something that, that dramatically caused you to rethink about who you are and the meaning of life. Now, you have to understand something. This is a guy who doesn't scare easily. And even when we hear the dream and we read the dream and the interpretation of the dream, I know what you're thinking. This is not such a scary dream. I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street. That's scary. I hate horror films. I hate them. 
I'm not good with horror, and I'm not good with nightmares, and I'm not good with that stuff. And if you ask me the question, do you like to be afraid? The answer is no, I do not. And this is frightening to him. And I want to help you understand why it is so frightening to him. Because God has awakened inside of him a sense that there's something terribly wrong, that there's something terribly wicked, that there's something terribly evil, and that his whole life and everything about his life is going to come to a dramatic end and he is going to be judged. But he wonders if it's true. How is it that he is going to once again be exposed to the reality of the God of Daniel? He has become apathetic and complacent and lethargic. And all of a sudden God has given him a dream and saying, I need you to wake up and I need you to listen to me at least one more time. John Calvin, writing about this passage, said, When God, therefore, wishes to lead us to repentance, He is compelled to repeat His blows continually, either because we are not moved when He chastises us with His hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then we return again to our former torpor. He is, therefore, compelled to redouble His blows. Here's the idea. He's fallen asleep. The voice of God seems silent and so God is going to wake him up in a dramatic and a distressing way and in verse 6 it says therefore I issued a decree to bring all in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream remember this is unlike the first dream in the first one he says look I'm not even going to tell you what the content of the dream is let alone the interpretation but he is frightened out of his wits Because this dream is a dream that threatens, if you will, his existence. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, and we learned about them in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but they didn't make known to me its interpretation. In other words, this time he tells them, and they said, hey, look, we're at a loss. Now, I, I want you to ask and answer yourself this question. Hey, Aren't these the guys who failed the king the first time around? Aren't these the guys who, when he went to them as the go-to guys, these are the people who left him miserably empty and alone? Hey, aren't these the people who turned the king against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and spurred him on in his fury to toss them into the flame? You know what this should do? This should cause you to ask and answer this question. Why do you keep going back to the places and the people and the things that have failed you in the past? Why do you keep looking to the scientists and philosophers? And why do you keep looking at your friends and relatives? Why do you keep looking at the failed philosophies of human beings who reject the authority of the Bible and who hate Jesus? Are you just looking for them to let you down one more time? This is interesting to me because God, remember I said, had given him the dream, had allowed him to witness the miracle, and despite all that God had done, and despite everything that he had witnessed in the past, in his unregenerate, wicked, carnal mind, he opposes God, and he opposes the things of God, and that becomes part of the challenge that each and every one of us have 
when we refuse to go to God for our answers, when we refuse to go to the revelation of God, when we refuse to go to the counsel of God, when we refuse to go to the wisdom of God, each and every one of us should check our own heart and say, what is this? What's going on inside of me? What is it in my pride, in my selfishness, in my wickedness that I keep going back to the unregenerate and the carnal? Because the Bible says that the carnal man is an enmity with God. The carnal man doesn't love God's law and doesn't love God's revelation. And the king has set his mind on the flesh and the wisdom of this world. He is, for all intents and purposes, a practical polytheist slash atheist. He's aware of God's wisdom. He's aware of the wisdom of Daniel. He's aware of the, of the wisdom of Daniel's friends. Question. Why didn't he call Daniel in the first place? Uh, hello, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, this is Daniel. I'm the Bible Bible answer man for Babel. Babel Bible answer man. Yeah, Daniel, I've had this dream. A weird dream. Crazy dream. And I need your help with this weird and crazy dream. Sinclair Ferguson offers at least one suggestion. He writes, and I quote, Perhaps the answer lies in his sense of guilt. Satan has this uncanny ability to blackmail us on account of our sin. We will not confess it openly. He blackmails us into leaving our sin unconfessed. Unquote. I like that. Why doesn't he call Daniel first? There's something wrong. There's something on the inside that's gone wrong. What is it that causes you not to go to the Bible first? What is it that causes you not to go to God first? What is it that causes us not to seek God's answer for difficult circumstances? I'm going to suggest something to you. That at least in this time, in the circumstances of his life, his conscience is hard and seared. He's done a lot of really bad things. But he doesn't really think of himself as a bad person. But look at verse 8. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. Look, when I had tried everyone else and everyone else had failed and all of the circumstances failed, that's when I went back to church. That's when I opened my Bible. When all else failed, I finally decided, hey, what the hey? I'll give God a chance. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, I'm Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And here's what is happening. The king senses that Daniel has supernatural wisdom. He certainly has the presence of the Holy Spirit. Daniel, I couldn't help but noticing that when the whole world comes unglued, uh, you seem to hold it together. The king knew Daniel could be trusted to tell him the truth. I think that that's one of the reasons why he didn't go to him to begin with also. When you open the Bible... And when you look at God's word, you can trust it to tell you the truth. 
the king knew that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. The king knew that Daniel was different, different from him. Look what it says. No secret troubles you. You don't seem to be annoyed or upset over anything. And do you know why the king said that, that no secret troubles you? I'm going to suggest to you again that Daniel and his friends seem untroubled, unaffected, unconcerned. In in other words, the Daniel and his friends, they know the Lord. They love the Lord. They're seeking and serving the Lord. They're praying and, and relying on God. And the king knew that Daniel and his friends were what he should have been but failed to be. Daniel was unaffected by secrets because Daniel stood in the presence of the one who understood all mysteries and all secrets. Daniel knew the sovereign God of the universe and that nothing was hidden from God. And Daniel also had the wisdom and the presence to know that if for whatever reason God has withheld something from him, it's because God doesn't want him to know. And believe it or not, I like that about God. Do you realize everything that I've ever told God in the privacy of my prayer closet, He's never told to anyone, not even you? But it works both ways. What you've told God in the secrecy of your private closet, He hasn't whispered in my ear either. I know sometimes you think that He has. Gino's looking at me like He knows! Oh, He knows! I really don't. Somebody else knows, but it's not me. Every event is still under the majesty and the sovereignty and the control of God. And in this sense, Daniel is what all who know and love the Lord should be. Daniel becomes a type and an example of the person who trusts the Lord and demonstrates that trust to a watching world. And the king knows that Daniel can be trusted to tell the truth, but somehow the king seems reluctant to hear the truth or even be influenced by the truth. And I suspect that he might be wondering why... He holds on to Daniel's old name. Remember in the text, he he calls him, this is Daniel, but I call him Belteshazzar. And I think that there's a reason why he's doing that. From the king's perspective, he thinks he's doing Daniel a favor. He thinks he's rewarding Daniel. He thinks that he's complimenting Daniel, just like your unsaved family and friends. When they call you those mean, weird, and wicked names. Oh, it's just a pet name. Wait, wait, tell me... What are you, fathead? Yeah, he knows what I mean. Ooh, wound, hurt. But remember, Belteshazzar is a slave name. It's the name that constantly reminds Daniel and his friends of the suffering and slavery and circumstances that they find themselves in. Daniel's also called the chief of magicians. This word is a very interesting word in the Aramaic language. It's rab, shartumim. It means more than the head of the magicians. It's a word that encompasses the chief scribe. It actually even comes from the word to write. It, it carries with it the idea of a person who knows and understands things. And by the way, it's the word that was used to describe the Magi who would come and visit Jesus at his birth. And some people believe that Daniel is the founder, if you will, of the Rab Shartumim. 
But even the fact that, Bel- that Nebuchadnezzar calls him that is interesting to me. Is Daniel just one religious man among many religious men, maybe even the most important, the wisest? This is interesting to me for a couple of reasons, and let me tell you why. The king is willing to petition Daniel, but he's not willing to petition the Lord. And I think that that's one of the dividing lines between people who know the Lord and the people who don't know the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, it's, it's flattering. It's interesting. Um, I'm more than happy to help you as the pastor. I love when you come to me. I love to pray with you. I love to answer your questions. But every once in a while, I'm going to say something to you. And I'm going to say, you need to ask the Lord. You need to pray. And you need to go into your closet and you need to ask God what you're asking me. And then you need to wait on him and then listen for an answer and submit to him. Because the truth is, I'm not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. And the Lord wants to be the Lord of your life. That doesn't mean you can never come to me with a question. But what it, what it means is that sometimes we tend to substitute human beings for, again, right relationship and fellowship with God. And I think that that's part of what's happening. I want you to remember something, that human beings will typically fall into one of two categories. Those who love the truth and those who don't love the truth. And the king speaks. Look at verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Now right away, I'm sure that Daniel would do what you're doing. Do you realize in the Bible there's, um, there's a rule of Bible study, you might call it. It's called the rule of expositional constancy. The rule of expositional constancy is what does the Bible have to say about this word or this subject? What is the reoccurring theme? What is a tree in the Bible? Well, remember, men are spoken of as trees. In Psalm chapter 1, verse Three, you know, a man is like a tree, like a well-watered tree beside the river. In Psalm 1:3, in Psalm 37:35, in Psalm 52:8, Psalm 92:12, Isaiah 56:3, Jeremiah 17:8. So, in the scriptures, typically a tree speaks of people, but not always. Nations are sometimes spoken of trees. Assyria is called a tree in Ezekiel 31. A mustard tree, we know about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13, 31. Israel is called an olive tree in Romans chapter 11, verse 16. The tree could be a nation. The tree could be a man. And then in verse 11, look what it says. The tree grew and became strong. Its, its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Now, whatever this tree is, remember, this is whose dream? Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I'm going to suggest something to you. That part of the meaning and the purpose of this dream is to communicate not simply the dream that God has given, but rather how he sees himself. He sees himself as a gigantic, strong tree that reaches to the ends of the earth. And and again, the immediate application seems to be King Nebuchadnezzar, but there may be a prophetic application. You see, remember I said that trees are sometimes men and sometimes they're nations. 
it could be this is a picture of Babylon, Gentile power in the last days. One of the things that struck me as I was rereading this passage and thinking about God's unfolding plan of the future, I thought, you know what? There's going to come a time towards the end of the age when there's going to be seven years of insanity and confusion in the nations. The Bible speaks of it as the time of Jacob's sorrow, the time of trial. Is this a hint? Is this a little picture of a future insanity that's going to come upon a world who in their pride have rejected God? We know immediately it applies to Nebuchadnezzar. Does the king's conversion take place after seven years of madness? Yeah. Will the world experience a conversion after seven years of madness? When the Lord shows up and the Bible says that the nation of Israel will be saved? I think it's just all very, very interesting. And by the way, the tree didn't sprout again until it was cut down. But that's for another time. And look again in verse 12. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwell in its branches, and all flesh was fled was fed from it, and I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast get out from under it, and the birds from its branches, nevertheless leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over. Seven, by the way, is a, it's, a, it's an idiomatic expression in the language which means a time period. It's a grouping of seven. Is this seven days? Is it seven months? Is it seven years? We're not told. And then it says... In verse 17, remember, this is the decision by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order to know that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowest of men. This is a picture of a person who has a very important job. Lots of people eat at his table. And in verse 17, when it says this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Who are these guys? Who, who are these watchers? You know? They seem to be heavenly, angelic, intelligent, created messengers who watch over the affairs of human beings. Remember in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits. And there seems to be some evidence that there's this supernatural class of intelligent, angelic beings. The Bible refers to angels as seraphim, which is the shining ones, and cherubim, the ones that cover the throne, if you will, of God. But then it gives this kind of strange designation, this strange title to this supernatural class of intelligent beings whose job it is to watch. 
Have you ever had the sneaking suspicion that you were being watched? You just felt something over your shoulder. You're driving. You're in the market. You're in a particular place. You're in, in whatever circumstances, and you get this this sneaking suspicion. Someone's watching you. I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible teaches that there is a multitude of angels that God created and that even though the Bible seems to indicate that one-third of them fell in rebellion and disobedience, that two-thirds didn't. And, and I'm going to suggest to you that there's even two groups of watchers. There are satanic and demonic watchers who are waiting for judgment to fall and they want to become the wicked instruments of that judgment. And there are righteous and holy watchers who watch the affairs of human beings. And that human beings, as they're being watched by these angelic beings, there is a sort of a stash that is being made by each and every one of us. And as we put into that stash, we are actually weighing out our own judgment. These angels perform a special function. They make decrees and they execute judgment in a way that is consistent with the Word of God and the character of God. But the Bible says that he'll be cut down. And that that cutting down will be the direct decision and decree of these angelic watchers. A lot of people reading this particular passage of Scripture have asked themselves the question, well, what does this mean? Does God cause or allow disasters? Does God cause or allow mental illness? One writer wrote, sorrow, despair, failure, sickness, mental illness are sometimes a part of his plan to draw upon when other more gentle methods have failed. Have you ever had the Lord whisper in your ear? I need you to change. I need this particular thing in your life to go away. And then he doesn't whisper in your ear. He gently taps you on the shoulder. And he raises his voice. And he says, look, you and I have already had this discussion and this this needs to stop. And has God ever shouted to you and shook you? Put you in time out? And said, okay, I whispered in your ear, I've tapped on your shoulder, I've put you in time out. What will it take in order to motivate you? Dr. Wallace Emerson writes, quote, So when we think on Nebuchadnezzar's madness as punitive, a judging of, of a, a pride, a pride of heart and rebuke for his harshness to Israel. There may be another purpose. That might be one. There might be another that God may put together a mind that is conformed to the truth, 
made possible by a more tractable spirit that he might come to a conviction of his own complete powerlessness to control his own destiny and to even control his own mind. In other words, God is acting in such a way to bring him to a place of brokenness and humility so that he can hear the word of God and respond to the word of God. That's why sometimes when I'm praying for you or I'm praying for your relatives and, and I pray, Lord, we give you permission to do whatever is necessary in order to bring this person to yourself. Wait, stop for a second. What do you mean by that prayer? I mean exactly what I'm saying. Are you willing to pray a prayer inviting God to do whatever it takes to bring yourself or to bring that person to a position of humility, brokenness, cooperation. <laughs> oh, my word. Look at verse 18. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, the interpretation, but you're able because the spirit of the holy God is in you. And you'll notice that his interpretation is very reluctant. Look at verse 19. The Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. The word for a time means a specific period of time. Just like if I say to you, do you have a minute? And then I take five of your minutes. Or do you have... See, if I say a moment, you're expecting a certain amount of time, aren't you? Can I have a moment? Can I have a minute? Can I have an hour? Can I have a day? Whatever this word means, it means for an extended period of time. In other words, this is something that he's given careful consideration. It says his thoughts troubled him. So the king said... Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and the interpretation concern your enemies. Over time, Daniel has developed a sense of love and loyalty even towards this wicked king. And he is the king. And you can live or die. He can draw in his breath. He can inhale or exhale. And your present circumstances are going to be dictated. And we've already seen what happens when he loses his temper. People can die. And Daniel says, The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, this height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It's you, O king. Well, that makes sense. I'm a mighty king and all of the world benefits by my presence on the planet Earth. And you've grown strong. True. No nation's greater. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. Right so far. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is judgment. Make no mistake about it. An axe 
is going to be laid to the foundation of his, his tree and it's going to be sawn and it is going to be cut and it is going to fall and sometimes that's exactly what will happen to you. The Lord will allow something to trouble the very foundations of your life and, and of your being. And he says, and this is the interpretation of King, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. This is an idiomatic expression in that language, which means you're going to run around naked. In other words, when you are wet with the dew of heaven, that means you don't have your clothes on. And the reason why you don't have your clothes on is because you're not in your right mind. And you're not going to be in your right mind for a very long time till seven times shall pass over you till, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He wishes unless you deal with this problem of pride. It's been supernaturally exacted by the God who lives in heaven and by the watchers who superintend the events of men that if you continue to to ignore and deny and rebel against God, He's going to judge you. And then He says, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Do you understand what He's saying? He's saying, And there's a chance that this is exactly what could happen. In other words, this catastrophic circumstance will be such that it will shake you to the very core of your identity and your being. But if you will allow the lesson to run its course, in the end, you will wind up with a right relationship with God. And then look in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's showing amazing courage. He lovingly and courageously confronts the king. And then he urges him to change. I know what some of you are thinking. I don't like confrontation. It's so unpleasant. It's really, really difficult to do that. But do you know why Daniel is doing it? Not because he hates the king, but because he loves the king and because judgment can be deferred. If you're a person who hates confrontation, if you're a person who's reluctant to confront, but you're quick to cut another person down, then there's something wrong with you. We're exhorted in the Bible to do these things. Number one, to speak the truth in love. That's what it says in Ephesians 4.15. We are to speak with gentleness and respect. In, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says that we're to be participants in the spiritual restoration of people. And when we ignore the command rather than honor the command, we disobey God and we wind up loving the people. We wind up hurting the people rather than loving the people that we need to help. And by the way, the handbook of the Bible is a, a, a book about repentance. As a matter of fact, repentance is commanded and infer, urged and enforced and illustrated some 60 times in the New Testament. But I've never seen a better definition of repentance than right here. Break 
sins. You understand what Daniel is saying to the king? Break it off. Do it right now. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not play games. Do not play games with your sin. Do not play games with your rebellion and disobedience. Cut it off. Cut it off now. As a matter of fact, the first recorded word of John the Baptist was repent in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says that Jesus is, is God's last word to the world. And do you know what? Jesus, who is God's last word to the world, his first word recorded in the Bible is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and it's the word repent. Isn't that interesting? God's last words, first word, is turn around. Go in a different direction. When the convicted crowd on the day of Pentecost asked, what shall we do? Peter's first response was repent. And by the way, there's no such thing as salvation or sanctification apart from repentance. And repentance is more than a feeling. And I'm going to even suggest to you that repentance is more than a conviction. You see, conviction is an awakening that takes place deep inside your soul. Conviction is an awakening that takes place inside of you, but repentance is a willingness because of that awakening that is taking place inside of you to get up and turn around and go in a different direction. And that's exactly what he's begging him to do. And not only does he say that, he says, I need you to do something different. You need to not only make a clean break with your sin, but you also need to act in righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. In other words, it's not good enough to just simply break off the sin. But I want you to do something different. I want you to act differently. I want you to speak differently. I want you to, to talk differently. I want you to conduct yourself in a way who is a, that you're a mighty king who is loving and just, who understands and accepts the reality of the great position that God has placed you in and that you will show mercy to the poor, perhaps thereby lengthening your, the time, if you will, or lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, if you will act in mercy and grace, maybe Perhaps, maybe God will defer judgment. Isn't that interesting? You think he's going to do it? We've read the whole chapter. The vision will be fulfilled. The judgment will come. A restoration will take place. But I'm going to have to actually wait till next week to do this. Because now, we're going to have communion. Now, remember I talked about the tree just very briefly? That trees can be men and trees can be nations. But there's another interesting tree in the Bible. It's the cross. The cross is made from wood. It's an instrument of judgment that becomes an instrument of grace. It's an instrument designed to torture and kill 
But then it becomes not just a symbol, but the source of healing and restoration and life. I think it's a strange thing that the cross was made from wood. Because again, it becomes a type and a picture of of God's grace and God's mercy. Do I have time? Then I'm going to take it. Let's just try and finish this. Ready? In verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, hey, guess what? Everything that was predicted, it happened. And then verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. So we know 12 months have gone by. The king spoke, saying, It's not this great Babylon that I have built for my royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Uh Uh-oh, what's happened? Uh Uh-oh, the Lord's judgment on pride is about to take place. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. In other words, God's judgment takes place with a single word. And now the judgment has happened. Someone once described pride like a beard. It grows every day. And the solution? You have to shave it every day. There was a minister, a boy scout, and a computer geek who were the only passengers on a small plane. And the pilot came back to the cabin and he said, look, we've got a real problem. The plane is going down. There's only three parachutes. We have four people. And the pilot said, look, I should have one of the parachutes. I have a wife. I have three kids. So he took one of the parachutes and he jumped out the door. And the computer geek said, I'm the smartest man in the world and everyone needs me. And so he grabbed a pack and he jumped. And then the minister turned to the young Boy Scout and he said with a sad smile, look, you're young. I've lived a full, rich life. Take the remaining chute. I'll go down with the plane. And the Boy Scout said, hey, relax, Reverend. The smartest man in the world has just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. We all know that God hates pride. But you know what's one of the saddest things in the whole wide world? We don't really understand why. We're not sure why he hates it so much. In Proverbs 6 and in 1 Corinthians 4, the Bible reveals to us that in part God hates pride because that's how sin entered the universe, according to Isaiah chapter 14. That's how Lucifer becomes Satan. How does pride destroy our lives when we think that God isn't watching and and that he doesn't care and that God isn't watching? As a matter of fact, in in Psalm 1011, it says God isn't watching. He doesn't care what we do. He'll never know. Pride deceitfully lures us into thinking that we can live our lives independently from God. And the reason why God hates it so much is because it undermines the seminal, essential, pivotal, fundamental reason why you exist. And that's to have friendship and fellowship with God. 
He created you to know you and to love you and to walk with you. And pride does exactly the opposite. It leaves you with the impression that you don't need Him. In the end, pride distorts our view of ourself and it distorts our view of others. And of course, it winds up distorting our view of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar is driven away. Verse 32, And they they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They'll make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. In verse 33, that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. You already know what that means. His hair had grown out like eagle's feathers. His nails like bird's claws. He's completely Unkept. By the way, there's a condition in the mental health literature called boanthropy. Boanthropy comes from bo, meaning cow, and anthropy, meaning man, the idea of being a man who thinks he's a cow. Raymond Harrison observed the case in a British mental institution in 1946. There was really, truly a young man in his early 20s. He was hospitalized for five years, and guess what? He ate grass on the hospital grounds, and he survived. But you know what's interesting? According to the Jewish Talmud, during that time of pain and sorrow, who do you suppose took care of the king? According to the Talmud, it was Daniel. Daniel took care of him. And it says in verse 34, And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. You know what? When you read that passage, I don't sense any bitterness or resentment. This happened to me, he's saying. And it was the right thing to do. Look what it says in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all of you whose works are truth, His ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, He's able to put down. If you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar, the person least likely to be saved is... what he would have written. The person least likely to be saved is me. I'm going to suggest to you God's blessing, Daniel's daily witness, Daniel's prayer, Daniel's care. Help the king come into a right relationship with the Lord. By the way, this is the last we're going to read of Nebuchadnezzar. He will live one more year. His son, evil Merodach, will take the throne. He will live in sanity for one year. His son will succeed him. And if there's two things that we learn from this passage, it has to be this. If God can save anyone, if God can save this guy, you are a stinking piece of cake. God's judgment may be slow, but it's certain. We tend to think that when discipline doesn't come swiftly, it will never come. But guess what? 
God isn't mocked. What a person sows, that also he will reap. And the third thing is God will go to extraordinary lengths to show us that he's the Lord and you're not. He will not allow pride to go unchecked. He will not allow pride to go unchallenged. He will not allow pride to go undisciplined. And even though it may not agree with your theology, he will use pain. And he will use hardship to remove ingratitude from your heart and egotism from your life. So that in humility and brokenness you'll acknowledge him. And you'll rely on him. And you'll trust him. And you'll want him. And you'll need him. And he demonstrates that brokenness and that humility in the sacrifice of his own son. He doesn't simply make pride go away. He kills it. And then he brings about a new life so that you can live in friendship and fellowship with God. And by the way, that's the gospel, isn't it? God will go to extraordinary lengths not to simply change you, but to kill you and bring you back to life so that you will love Him and know Him and honor Him. And we're going to have communion. And I'm sorry for keeping you, but we're just going to take a moment and I'm going to have Isaac come up and we're going to play some songs. I'm going to, we're going to distribute them. I just want you to hold the elements until we all have a chance to partake. But before we do that, I want to issue an invitation. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is here And you've been speaking to them. Perhaps you've whispered in the past. Perhaps you've tapped on the shoulder. But perhaps the urging has become greater and greater and greater. Perhaps it's a dream. Perhaps it's a nightmare. Perhaps it's the nightmare of a a life lived apart from God. Lived away from God. Lived without God. And it's starting to catch up with you. And you know you need Him. You need to have a right relationship with God through Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray, knowing that only You can do the work. No one comes to You unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. It's not the excellence of words, Lord. But I pray that You will tap on that heart. Lord, I pray that You would nudge that person in in the direction of sanity. That they will admit that you are the true God. Like Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. That I am the Lord. That I exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness on the earth. In these things I delight, says the Lord. Lord, we want you to delight in us and delight in our heart. Lord, we want to put away our wickedness. Lord, we want to walk in righteousness. Lord, we want to live our lives in such a way that we can extend mercy to the poor. And so, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just simply change, but that we would be transformed 
that we can experience newness of life that comes from accepting the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, knowing that because he's alive, he can change each and every one of us. That he can destroy pride. Our proud, willful wickedness that desires to live a life apart from you. Lord, we pray that you would just put it to death and that we could live a new life in Christ. And if that's you and you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't, you want to participate in communion, just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. It's easy to do. You, you can right there from the quietness and privacy of your own seat just cry out to God and say, God, look deep inside of me. Get rid of those things that are dishonoring and dis disfiguring and Heavenly Father I pray for that Christian who needs to recommit their life and get back on track they've been going everywhere and to anyone and they've been coming up with the same false and fake answers over and over again Lord I pray that they would return to you that they would return to the cross that they would return to the love and the promises that are found in the Bible Lord Renew us. Lord, cause us to turn to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.